0: Well, I mean, there is real austerity. It's not all ideological. I just would prefer to understand the material crisis as a crisis of higher ed, not a crisis of literary criticism. There's some relative autonomy there. You know, I don't think it's like our fault for delivering the wrong message or practicing the wrong method.
1: Jed Esty is the Vartan Gregorian Professor of English at University of Pennsylvania. And more importantly, as relates to this series, the author of The Future of Decline, I read the book this past spring, as I was teaching my annual Culture of Global Recession course. It begins with the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, an awe-inspiring demonstration of rising Chinese power, made all the more affecting by its taking place as the global financial system was melting down, unraveling the US-led market liberalism which had prevailed since the end of the Cold War. In addition to invigorating my pedagogy, Jed's book stuck with me as I worked on this series. Eventually, I invited him to be a part of it, and I thought the conversation we recorded would make up the bulk of the series' final episode, as it still might. But as I continued working on Criticism Limited, it became clear my experience wasn't an isolated one. Jed's book kept coming up. On the last episode, you heard Kim Adams mention a lecture he gave at Brown University. She was just one of half a dozen people who mentioned these ideas to me, sometimes talked about them at some length, as you'll hear. While professing criticism was making headlines, and many of us were certainly dissecting those headlines, the future of decline seemed to be the brainworm that was working much more quietly upon the professoriate. At least a selection of it who I happen to be talking to. So I don't think we can wait. Jed's arguments are going to weave their way into the front half of this series, even if I try to hold them back, so I won't. In this case, I asked him about what I called austerity in the midst of abundance.
0: I, I just do think that it's important to form alliances with the sciences as well as with history. The basic science is to understand the problem as instrumentalized knowledge and essentially the corporate university looking for returns on dollar rather than a public good, which would be the best definition of education and not one that is essentially privatized and corporatized. I think the bigger argument for which you brought me into the conversation is that I do think that a ground shift is happening and will continue to happen when the broad American literate and voting population really internalizes the fact that we are number two. I think that part of the buoyant ideological power of neoliberalism, uh, of the Washington consensus that got locked in the 1990s was the idea that we had demonstrated the ultimate success yeah. in the kind of Francis Fukuyama sense. Yeah.
1: The end of history and we won. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we haven't won. And the last 10 years, let's say, from 2008 through Trump mm-hmm. to the current like moment of geopolitical destabilization, not just of the American power order, but of the liberal order per se, is showing what was wrong and or at least historically bounded and temporary about that Fukuyama worldview. Now, this is a lot of levels of mediation between that and our problems and our mission and our call to arms. But one level at which we can make a quick and fairly concrete jump to that is... As long as America's understood public mission and destiny is to maintain its hegemony, then we live in an austerity model almost all the time. The decline of American power completely correlates to the massive increase in economic dominance of the news, of the idea that what it means to be an American is to worry about whether we are competitive, whether we are losing ground, whether our lifestyles will be compromised, Whether climate crisis, let alone China and India and the rest of Asia competing with us, will make it impossible to maintain these things. That's a more or less constant, jolting, adrenalizing, fear-driven feed into the American psyche. And I do believe that when we start acknowledging that we will become number two and then number three, that it's an inevitability of capitalism's form Mm -hmm. that that will happen, something will relax something will be forced on the intellectual life of America from the outside. Intellectuals cannot lead in this country. You know, vanguardism doesn't work, but the material changes around us will start to percolate through the system. And I believe that it's possible to unlearn supremacy, and there I mean both national and white, as it was possible to learn supremacy, and there I mean both national and white. And I think that's a process that is happening, whether we want it to or not. And we do. I do want it to happen. But my wanting it to happen is different from it happening because what it means for America to be America is changing. And that change is afoot in the next generation. America being number one at everything keeps constant economic pressure on the idea that we have to grind out the most disadvantageous labor relations possible. That we have to sacrifice all environmental regulation in order to keep energy costs artificially low and to compete with all these other rising global economies we can't and we don't and we shouldn't (laughs) and we can have a better cleaner more functional more just society once we let go of that grand rhetorical headline that america is the greatest and that the only way to be american is to invest all your political capital and all your aspirations in always being on top.
1: Welcome to the American Band. From the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, I'm Matt Siebel. The unofficial prequel to Criticism Limited is the special 50th episode I did with Anna Cornblue and Chris Newfield on the eve of the MLA Convention on Working Conditions this January. Almost immediately, we discussed doing a post-mortem, as all of us had even more to say after the panels, roundtables, and plenaries. But by the time we actually got together in April, some of that momentum had been lost. Among the things that seem to have happened since we spoke last is a kind of urge to eschatology about literary studies english departments the entire humanities but especially concentrating on english associated with prestige legacy publications like the new yorker and the new york times they're all running stuff that is about ends and crises that seems to have escalated in the last six months let's just start there like why the hell do we suddenly have this perception from outside academia that English is done, (laughs) that we are in the death now of literary studies?
2: I thought the New Yorker piece was the nadir. That was just atrocious. The thing that I'm concerned about is the profession's death drive getting triggered by these very high status people and then getting picked up by levels of media that none of us really have access to.
3: I just think that it can't be understated that there's a professional class of journalists, many of whom may have been English majors, whose inexhaustible interest in chronicling restricted access to that class formation itself, to professional writing (laughs) and to professional thinking and professionality as such, they chronicle that lack of access as if it were caused by a decline in enthusiasm for the humanities. And that is just pure obfuscation. (laughs) It's a pure class ideology. And when you say oh, why have the last six months or the last few years seen an uptake in this kind of analysis? The displacement where it's the objects of philosophy or the objects of the literary canon or the knowledge basis of and the text basis of the humanities, which are somehow just unattractive anymore, instead of that there is an all-out assault on public higher education, which Chris has chronicled extensively for 30 years, but which has taken a really acute turn, a very intensely racist turn, where it's just about depriving people of their means of free inquiry. That it's hard not to see these pieces as just pure cover for that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. My perspective is kind of specific because I was the president of the MLA during that year. And the theme that I came up with was working conditions that went over very well. It's somewhere between a third and a half of the panel's at the convention had working conditions as their theme. There's a lot of great stuff that I wasn't able to go to because of the sort of administrative obligations. And then immediately after the convention, the public discourse is this topic which obliterates the material conditions that are undermining the profession. It became a discussion about the self undermining of the profession through an inappropriate approach to criticism. And that was the piece of the Guillory book, whatever else is going on in that book that got picked up by the media. So it's just pure displacement from the fact that we are grotesquely underfunded. We've been adjunctified over 30 or 40 years. And this other fact, which I think needs to be talked about more, which is that the professional apparatus of the profession has not really done anything about that. In my address, I called for a national strategy for professional redevelopment and rebuilding, very much around research, but also around de-identification. And those kinds of topics are not part of the, the crisis of criticism at all. They're in fact rendered invisible and marginalized by this idea that we have sinned ourselves within the field by doing too much politics or writing too much about society. And it's just, is it was really bad timing. Because <laughs> <laughs> there is momentum in the rank and file, as Anna knows as well as anyone, that's being expressed in union struggles. And there's a lot of interest in thinking about the institutional conditions and how to fix them. But at this other level of public discourse that is dominated by the folks that Anna just described, it it's the opposite of that. It's just like an internal depravity or an internal error mm-hmm. rather than a being systematically defunded for ideological as well as other structural reasons.
1: Let's turn in that direction. I think one of the reasons, and I would agree with you, Chris, that... The feeling of optimism that I came away from MLA in January with, I would say, exceeded any MLA in my career, (laughs) right? That that really my entire career has been under the ominous threat of austerity after 2007 and 2008 my first MLA, I believe, was actually 2008. And so uh, MLA has always, maybe for me, felt like a a kind of gathering of obsolescence. There were stretches where I stayed away from it for that exact reason. There were other events, other aspects of the profession that excited me a lot more and didn't give me the constant feeling of dread that was associated with what used to be part of MLA, which was the academic job market simultaneously. And I came away in January with real excitement, like you said, about the kinds of panels and plenary sessions. And there was something of a letdown that it was then immediately followed by this fear mongering, it felt in the national press. But what I will say is this tire slashing. Yeah, is that to, to counteract that to some degree is another thing that we were talking about four months ago was the academic labor movement. And there Mm -hmm. There have been considerable reasons for optimism, right? A union victory by academic workers at University of Illinois, Chicago, Anna's Homes Institution, a really amazing cross-rank strike at Rutgers, a huge win in the face of considerable adversity, from grad students at uh, Temple, and then an ongoing strike right now at University of Michigan that that I think is, or you know, maybe worth talking about. But that's as Anna and I actually talked about earlier this week. That's just a, like a sliver. I'm finding it hard to keep up with the news related to academic labor actions. I know there was a certification of a union at Penn, I think just yesterday or two days ago. There's stuff going on all over the place, at all ranks, in all types of institutions. And for the most part, it's been all good news in the long run, right? There've been certainly ugly moments within those, those strikes, but in the end, most of the time, all cases that I'm aware of, the laborers have gotten what they asked for that's a real reason for excitement. One of the things that I wanted to try to, to grapple with is what is the relationship between that kind of structural action and the continued ongoing concern trolling about method, about canon, about the state of our intellectual products.
2: I, I thought there was a lot of great stuff going on You mentioned the union movement. The other thing is Nathan Heller's piece in the New Yorker. It was framed with a title that he did not give it. And then it led with this declining enrollment data or declining majoring data, not enrollment, but then there was all this stuff from students and also other kinds of professors about how important the humanities is, how much they want to get involved in it. And that the reason they're not getting involved in it is because their own institutions are not investing in it properly. So he had a materialist analysis in that, well, if universities built new buildings for the humanities and show that they viewed it as important and that the outside society would view it as important, and I mean, this is my obsession, and that it's producing knowledge that students can then use to have an impact on their society, then they'll go into the humanities. And there was no deficiencies in the courses the teaching Sarah Blackwood's piece made this clear, and the Chronicles interview of her and the I'm forgetting his name. Um, Joe Resnick.
1: Joe Rez. Sorry? Joe Resnick from University of Massachusetts, I think. Yeah. B
2: U. No B U. Boston University. Yeah. They, oh. Yeah. They were there's all this like vitality, this intellectual energy, and thought and reflection and revival and transformation that's happening. <laughs> And it's just like off the radar of the mega press that is just not in the trenches at all with anybody. And every couple of years, pronounces the death of, and also feeds off. It must be said, the Chronicle Review, which is a higher ed press and which has run an endless series and then packaged as a separate product, the death of a profession. Us. <laughs> so I, it's just the the forty thousand foot level and the actually happening on the ground are completely unrelated to each other and i i just wish that we could get the ground level view into better view and i thought the heller piece actually was a start on it other folks could build on
3: i think that's right but i think that the ground level view does as the students in that piece indicate the ground level view reveals what austerity looks like right what defunding looks Mm -hmm. like what de-skilling looks like if students are the message that their humanities is the zero level or the 100 level class that they have to take in some almost remedial fashion to clear the credential hurdle. And what's important in their education is their bigger credentials towards engineering or nursing or business. And they are given those messages by our austerocrat politicians, whether it's Barack Obama in Wisconsin saying you can't earn money with an art history degree, and Scott Walker dismantling the Wisconsin idea at that exact same moment, or they're giving those ideas by administrative imperatives around PR and what's on the website of a university's landing page and whether there's any celebration of humanist inquiry and humanist achievements and humanist knowledge making. that there is this large kind of apparatus of communication, which tends to not wholly obliterate the counter messages that come from the classroom itself, but that really do over determine the narrative. And that is an austerity apparatus, it's a de-skilling, it's a service apparatus, right? And that message comes through infrastructurally to the students, and I think that's where it's related to this endogenous crisis about is there any there there it is very hard for a profession to say that it has some there there when two whole generations of research have been deadened to us have been lost to us yeah. have been expelled from the profession already in major ways and broader generations depending upon how you count right I think one reason why certain books take up all the airspace is because there aren't enough books and there aren't enough books because people's working conditions don't support research and they don't support research because of adjunctification and defunding. And that is a war on the American people's right to class mobility. <laughs> and so this is like a, a big matrix, I think, where, yeah, the criticism crisis conversation about our methods is like a reflection of the presentation of us as if we don't make knowledge, as if we are just merely the ground floor. We'll be
1: coming back to Anna and Chris in just a few minutes, but I expect we need to take a step back As Anna points out, Chris has been living in the weeds of university budgets and education policy for decades. And she's just finished months of negotiating as a member of her union's bargaining team. These are scholars very much on the front lines of this crisis, for whom its complicated backstory is almost second nature. But systemic defunding, austerocrat politics, de-skilling, how does it all fit together? Why is it, as Chris said earlier, ideological as well as structural. As much as I have learned from reading Anna, Chris, Annie McClanahan and other scholars in critical university studies, nobody has contributed more to my understanding of what is happening in U.S. higher education than the heterodox economist Yanis Varoufakis, who was the finance minister of Greece for a few tumultuous months during the Eurozone crisis, as he details in his memoir of the period, Adults in the Room. Here he describes the absurd double-bind Greece faced.
4: The IMF, wherever it goes, it tries to impose what, what they refer to as internal devaluation. Uh, devaluing labor, devaluing pensions, closing down small firms, uh, small shops, pharmacies and replacing them with supermarkets, that creates, you know, liquidate, liquidate, liquidate. So that means, of course, a, com- a wholesome shrinkage in, in, in the economy, in the social economy. Now, that is their want. But at the same time, they are clever enough to know that when you shrink the national income and the social economy of a country like Greece, a program country, then you can't expect them to repay the gargantuan debt that has been accumulated. So they are like a quasi-ennumerate villain who wants to turn Greece into a desert, call it peace, and, of course, they understand that they have to cull the, the debt. The the German government, on the other hand, and the European Commission that is acting on their behalf, simply do not want to talk about the debt, because this would mean going to the federal parliament in Berlin and admitting that the loans for Greece, the so-called bailout loans for Greece, were not loans for Greece, they were loans, bailout loans, for German and French banks. And that money was never intended to come back to the German, to the Slovak, to the Portuguese taxpayers. It was always going, going to be money that was given from the taxpayers of Europe initially from Greeks and then everybody else, to the French and the German bankers.
1: Vera coined a term, Ponzi austerity, to describe this very specific situation. The laundering of tax revenues through the European Commission, the International Monetary Fund, and then the Greek government, with the intention of depositing them into private financial institutions, which were teetering on the brink of collapse, but ineligible by law to receive money directly from their own governments. But I think we should recognize Ponzi austerity as a process that reappears, as indeed integral to what Anna has dubbed too late capitalism. By my definition, Ponzi austerity is the redistribution of public funds to private capital through an intermediary, a kind of patsy, whose sole purpose is to absorb and warehouse an unrepayable debt. Ponzi austerity protects corporate balance sheets and provides a flimsy shield for politicians and technocrats against the just criticism that they are doling out welfare to billionaires and multinational conglomerates. It also, quite intentionally, sabotages the intermediary, who, unable to repay funds they never actually receive, is pressured to implement increasingly stringent austerity measures. Wage reductions, layoffs, labor intensification, asset fire sales, the restriction of services, Each wave of cost-cutting further compromises productivity, which justifies further cost-cutting. For the intermediary, Ponzi austerity is a very slow, maddening death spiral. The U.S. higher education system, once and perhaps still the envy of the world, has become a preferred vehicle for Ponzi austerity in the United States. An increasingly large share of the billions of dollars that pass through U.S. colleges and universities is intended to subsidize their so called corporate partners real estate developers, construction companies, tech startups, consulting agencies, and their parents in private equity and venture capital. University administrators and members of the boards of trustees, riddled with conflicts of interest, set up budgeting priorities and sign contracts, sometimes paying tens of millions for a generic slideshow or an unusable web application, or simply buying real estate and green lighting building projects for which there is no pressing need. Then, when the institution runs a deficit, they blame the unionized custodial staff, or the library, or the tenure system, or the woke students, and they proceed to pay millions more dollars to another consulting agency to perform an institutional audit, the motive of which is identifying what reductions to faculty, staff, programs, and services will best serve the administration's corporate partners. Here's Vera Falcus describing austerity-enforced privatization schemes following a lecture at the New School in 2016.
4: Privatization is a lump grab. Privatization is obscene. You take all the public assets of a state, you put them in a bucket, and then you, you, you appoint, the creditors appoint a president, a CEO for that bucket company, and they do fire sales getting rid of the silverware of the family uh, at ridiculously low prices and take little, that little money to throw it into the bottomless pit of unsustainable debt. That is a crime against logic, yeah. and this is worse than a crime against humanity.
1: When I first read Adults in the Room, in the midst of what Anna dubbed Academe's Coronavirus Shock Doctrine, the rapacious privatization of Greek infrastructure reminded me of all the campus communities I was hearing about. Where counseling services were being replaced by chatbots, employee training and even introductory coursework was being automated by Udemy or Coursera. Emergency funds were being used to pay for lockdown browsers to surveil students and mine their data and green spaces were being sold off to private parking vendors. Such measures were always presented as cost-saving, revenue-generating, fiscally sound. But frequently, in practice, they not only reduced the quality of education in campus culture, but also cost more over the long run, as the corporate partners, benefiting from contracts they negotiated with themselves, hiked prices, trimmed costs, failed to provide the services for which they'd been paid, and siphoned revenue which might otherwise have been reinvested in the institution. But the submission of higher education decision-making to corporate interests does not end with privatization. The distribution of resources amongst departments and disciplines uses subsidization of research and development for private enterprise as the top priority. Both private and public grants flow disproportionately into STEM departments, but so do tuition proceeds and other university revenue streams. The result is the production of technology and other intellectual property, the proceeds of which almost always end up going entirely to the corporate partner, even though the costs are actually shared by the corporation, the university, and the public. Humanities research has been presumed to create minimal added value to corporate research and development. Whether or not this presumption is correct is open for debate, but that humanities research has been aggressively defunded is not. As friend of the pod Ashish Kapoor Sadiq detailed last week for Inside Higher Ed, dozens of research fellowships for humanities scholars have simply ceased to exist in the last decade, and the surviving ones are reducing their expenditures and altering their mission. Deprofessionalization is being enforced upon literary studies by Ponzi austerity. In this next segment, Chris, Anna, and I discuss what that looks like, how it might be counteracted, and how it relates to the golden age of popular criticism which is unfolding simultaneously.
3: What do you think Chris also Matt, about the kind of argument that actually some of these skills have disseminated through and been exercised in the broader culture, but that they're living in a medium or they're practiced in the medium of pleasure, like the TV recap, say, (laughs) and and not one that people associate with either their work or knowledge, that there is actually on more platforms than ever before in more idioms than ever before about more cultural expression than ever before by more diverse producers than ever before, like a lot of engagement with humanistic texts, which are that interdisciplinary constellation of ways of mapping the world. And that engagement somehow doesn't seem to drive what people think they're at the university for. And again, there's that meta-narrative about that's because they're at the university for credentials for vocation <laughs> for work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Do you think that it's misreading that's going on in unless episode recaps, for instance?
2: <laughs> in other words, that we talk about literary knowledge, we're talking about a kind of a a puritanical anti-pleasure form of rationality that is contrasted with our world of complex emotion that social media has immersed all of us in.
3: I guess the the kind of mediatic landscape of how much TV people are consuming, how much reading they're doing, how much fan culture there is, how much music there is, and how people are are engaged in that kind of criticism as it were of processing that, but that whole realm of kind of cultural practice and cultural production doesn't mm-hmm. seem to always align mm-hmm. with what we understand to be the, the fate of the humanities and the institution.
2: Yeah, I I yeah. So there's this paradox that you're pointing out, which is that cultural production is doing really well and cultural study or criticism is not
3: mm-hmm.
2: while we're being austericized. They are being just proliferated right. in the outside world through. Yeah. So the question is, is that really a paradox? And my feeling is right. that it isn't in the sense that the, the, learning how to do that, which is school, which is where we are still located is a prerequisite to being successful at that. So there's always these phenoms that come out of nowhere that can't attribute their media stardom to. English courses that they took when they were sophomores, because in many cases, they're 13 years old. (laughs) They haven't actually been to college yet. But by and large, the practices that get developed in the university are ones that feed directly into knowledge production that isn't all framed by what we do in the university.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. I think this is a Maybe a slightly different way of answering your, your question, Anna, but it reminds me of Ryan Ruby just recently gave uh, a lecture in which he was actually arguing we're in a golden age of criticism. And, and the only reason we don't recognize that is if we define criticism too narrowly to things like legacy publications, and academia, and particularly elite academia, the kind of criticism that is coming out of Ivy League institutions. If we expand our definition, and especially if we start thinking about the wide variety of web publications, many of them digital first, digital only, we think about things like YouTube and podcasts and so on and so forth, actually there's an incredible amount of critical work being done in part because, as you mentioned, there's an incredible amount of cultural product that sort of demands some form of reception. And certainly a lot of things do get lost. And I think that's something worth talking about too, right? Like overabundance of cultural product creating a situation where a lot of things just don't get the reception that they deserve. But I was thinking about what Ryan said. And There's a podcast I love called House of R with Mallory Rubin and Joanna Robinson. They are doing like myth and symbols type of analysis, narratology, tropology, the kind of criticism maybe that we feel is escaping from academic scholarship. But here it is on a podcast that I have no doubt has tens of thousands of listeners, maybe more, and they are sort of teaching those people to watch hbo prestige tv marvel cinematic universe movies like that kind of stuff with the set of critical tools that we might associate with a great books classroom in the 1980s right <laughs> and like yeah and I, I, and, and I absolutely think that to, to anna's point if we only think about criticism as coming out of university mm-hmm. presses peer-reviewed journals and legacy print publications then yeah, maybe there is some kind of crisis. But as soon as we expand outwards in terms of media, in terms of the types of voices, then there might actually be a kind of golden age in the way that, that Ryan describes it.
2: Yeah, you're flipping the original cultural capital thesis on its head, because you're saying that the cultural capital of critical analysis, even as it seemed diminished inside the university in relation to economics, finance. Biomedical studies, the other hegemonic disciplines of sort of the Reagan era on, responding to changes in capitalism from kind of welfare state capitalism to neoliberalism and financialization. And we could just see this as the the status change within the university as a local issue that affects all of us, but that doesn't actually affect in the same way the life of criticism in the world so that it may well have higher cultural capital than it did when it was primarily attributed to close reading practices within classrooms at universities. That's how I feel about it anyway. It's just, it's great. It's amazing what people say on Amazon book Comment.
3: I think to go post-cultural capital, right, some of the argument in professing criticism is that we are a profession without a discipline, but it seems like in fact criticism is a set of practices without a profession, right? So that to go back to the um, question of what it means that we are generations deep in austerity and expurgation and expulsion and professional murder, right? There is a vibrant, dynamic, lively practice of criticism, which has more or less degree of actual material compensation or more or less degree of connection to professions in the world and little connection to the profession of professor. And I think that it's really tricky to tease out the institutional and economic pathways of this stuff, because as Matt was part of at their MLA presidential session that we organized on podcasts and book TikTok and YouTube and little magazines as these alternative platforms for criticism, right? Criticism is alive and well, but who's getting compensated for it and who's doing it, right? Are people who earn PhDs and got expelled from the profession and who are making a living in some other way, but then also making Patreons and podcasts and so on. Is that the way they're making their living? Do those people count as professional critics? Is it only people who have a different day job or a way of paying the bills? I am sure, I know, because of how my career has changed just from podcasting too many times with Matt, let alone with, you know, (laughs) like I don't host a podcast, but I seem to be fortunate to be invited to them a lot. And more and more people who I encounter know my work exclusively through podcasts, not through figures. And I know the download figures tell me how many more people my talking, reaches than my writing and that's not just my genres that's just how people are consuming criticism yeah. and but I have a job so I am still so far right now and so I find it very confusing to talk out is all this vibrancy despite the lack of a profession are we romanticizing when we say look at all this that's there or is it that people are, are finding alternative ways to capitalize?
1: Mm -hmm. Is there like a de-skilling and gigification thing that we have to talk about here that the the reason there is this abundance that Ryan is describing is that much of it is low paid or unpaid gig work that is also, and I think the point you make is incredibly good one, right? That if people want to keep doing it once they have been expelled from the academy, they are probably going to keep doing it for little or no pay at least until they establish themselves in the way that Ryan has, which is a a very exceptional circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's the way that they are continuing to exercise these tools, do they uh, develop a certain amount of regret and grievance, maybe towards criticism itself, but certainly towards the institution that didn't allow them to stay? And I think that might be one reason to explain the sort of eschatological headlines that we were talking about earlier, is that a lot of the people who are involved in producing them may have wanted to be professors at one point, and even if they have found good careers and and are still using all the tools that they got as MFAs or English PhDs, they have developed a certain amount of animosity towards a profession which excluded them or which they perceive as excluded.
2: I, I share their animosity towards the profession to the extent that it has failed in its job to, to reproduce itself. And I'm not at all ambivalent about professional status. It's absolutely important. And we need both. We need outside the academy, but we also need the academy. One of the things that's happening in the humanities establishment is Less support for professional criticism, including professional teaching on the one hand, under good working conditions, tenure track, stability, proper pay benefits, and time to to think and do research on the one hand, deemphasizing that and trying to uh, replace it with public engagement through NEH block grants to states, through humanities councils, through community humanities. And community humanities is great. It cannot, it does not have the financial structure or the skill base to reproduce professional criticism, which depends on universities. And we need both of them. And I'm not really sure why we aren't working on both of them at the same time. The humanities establishment has really been remiss over decades now in trying to maintain the funding base, both for employment and the thing that they really do control research funding advocacy so that both of these pieces of the overall production scheme can be healthy amateur criticism with professional skills looks better than professional criticism in the university with professional skills because of the deprofessionalization that the university has not only been tolerating but actually actively encouraging (laughs) and in fact requiring by pulling money out of the very fields that produce those skills. And it's it's very strange that there's any contentment at all or resignation in relation to folks just having to build their own platforms on the outside, not by choice, but because they were forced out. They should have had the choice to stay in, and then a lot of people would either do both, like Tom Lutz, who kept his job at UC Riverside while also developing LARB which is one of the great sort of non-academic critical outposts, or just like quitting his job and then doing that full-time if there had been some way of making it pay, which there wasn't.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I also think that the student in the (laughs) Heller New Yorker piece, one of the students in the New Yorker piece, articulates a broader ideology where this humanistic failure for research advocacy congrues with the matrices of value under neoliberal privatization. There's that line where she says like, people involved in the humanities may not even need to go to school for what they're wanting to do. They call Mm -hmm. them influencers online, right? Instead Mm -hmm. of working nine to five for your $15 minimum wage, you can value your time, right? Mm -hmm. And so that there's this kind of, why do we need to study the humanities when we all just wanna be cultural influencers? There's a logic there that one can simply effuse and emanate and kill right cultural prowess and cultural capital without having any process of training or any exposure to the history of ideas or the history of art and that Claim about effulgent, sui generous human capital is deeply inscribed in the political logic of privatization in the last fifty years. So our own humanist discrediting of research by Mellon or the foundation funders or the NEH or whatever, like that macro story. And I agree that those are power players that should be held to account. You're great at that, Chris, but is also just like a. It's just a, a sheaf in the even bigger story of what's culture, what's capital. These things just simply spontaneously arise and we don't need any resources management to get them.
2: It's the ideology of nature's nation in which talent rises to the top because we deregulated and privatized sufficiently so that government isn't messing with just letting talent rise. So if you're an influencer, it's just because you're a born genius, and America's all about liberating born geniuses and keeping right. the rest of us from interfering with them. <laughs> it's ridiculous.
3: Just in the case of the culture industries, in and, and the more that we move to information and service based economy and less of a kind of production economy, and okay, we can debate how true those things are, but the, in the case of the culture industries, it's just particularly pernicious and insidious because it's easy to imagine that these are immaterial, right? There's just about charisma and not about literacy,
1: perspective, identity, right? Yeah. yeah. Now all the things that you, you've been talking about with your critique of auto criticism and auto fiction. And the, the point that the two of you are, are making, I think, is an incredibly important one to to reiterate that yes, like the public humanities, which is something that I get asked to talk about and advocate for on a regular basis, <laughs> community humanities, like these things are really important, but they are impoverished if we don't have specialized research also. Like yeah. that, that the, any sort of good public humanities work is going to be rooted in reading, engaging scholarship that is well-funded, that takes time, that is idiosyncratic, and being able to pull from that the things that can be adapted to a general audience. But if that stuff's not there, then like you said, the, the sort of public humanities work essentially becomes kind of effusion, personality, charisma, trying to make limit research sound
2: yeah Yeah, and you know who really believes in charisma and celebrity literary criticism as a (laughs) profession we are the most gullible bunch of people as a group and I think it goes back to the cult of genius around romantic poetry I'm engineers whom I spent a lot of time with in this sort of multi-year NSF grant they don't believe in that it's really about work and they don't think you're born with engineering talent it's really about dedication and passion and motivation. And you have to build stuff. I just think we're, we've been duped by, by that. like we are, <laughs> that and I, I think that's one of the things The Guillory phenomenon was he's this kind of perennial master figure in the discipline, going back to the, the book 30 years ago. And in an array of like, you have a convention that has a multiplicity of voices most of them non-celebrities, if not all of them, you could replace that complex convention voicing, which I really hope the MLA manages to get on the website permanently and create as an archive, with a single (laughs) figure who is jaded about it. And you can sew up the fate of the discipline with essentially one voice saying that it sabotaged itself and is in decline. It's a simplifying narrative of the kind that we always resist when we're reading texts, and which the New Yorker and the New York Times are pretty happy with imposing. But it goes back to us, <laughs> there's a, there's a superego attachment to that, that I think is, is holding us back as a field.
1: I think that's really interesting. and I. I recently had a conversation that will be part of the podcast with Katie Cadu. And one of the things that she's written about is the the sort of academic star system, the English Institute. And,
2: yeah, uh, yeah. And piece, yeah. That
1: piece really captured a kind of epochal change that you seem to, to be alluding to. That there was maybe, it was probably always more inflated than we realized, but there was something like, academic celebrity, certainly theory celebrity, critical celebrity in the 1970s and 1980s. But if there is still such a thing, it only resides in the people who were produced during that time. Or it is far more amorphous, right? And and as Katie's piece captures, it is distributed on things like Twitter and in forms that are not the same as the kind of celebrity lecture, right? That mm-hmm. uh, or the the person coming to to give a three week seminar and getting paid an exorbitant amount of money. Like those standards of academic celebrity seem to be fading away, and may not be rescuable, may not be worth rescuing, right? And I. I do think that has to be associated in some way with this discussion about the death of criticism is what we're actually mourning, the death of celebrity scholars like John Guillory, right? That this may be the last time that we get somebody doing the kind of tour, coming out of an English department, a University of Chicago Press book, and then being interviewed by the New York Times, having that book reviewed shortly after it comes out in all the legacy publications. Like that just... It doesn't really happen very often anymore. And we're not going to have very many more of those episodes, at least based on how, how I see things.
3: I don't I don't know. I find the entire star system discourse, and most especially the anti-star system discourse to be not very clarifying about how power and resources work in the academy. The fact is that most of the stars that one could possibly identify hailed from the Ivy League or well resourced institutions. And some way has that old piece about like it's about cheap flights, that there was a form of expensive resources that enable a certain kind of traveling. You can only try travel if you are traveling to a place that has money to invite speakers that thinks of themselves as a research place that's already not but the vast majority of institutions of higher education and the but the fact is that those preserves of resources are where the humanities are still alive unfortunately right i think kate hale said a while ago we have boutique humanities in the ivy league and then we have vocational school for everyone else right even though the service courses for which the humanities are essential are the spine of the vast majority of educations for the 20 million people in higher ed in the United States, there are still the hedge fund structures and the endowment structures and the research budget structures of the star making enterprises. Joe Rezick himself had a viral tweet a couple of weeks ago because he discovered that sometimes famous academics are able to use their research budgets to hire publicists. Yeah. And one might like to know which of our stars today have their work reviewed in the New Yorker all the time or have profiles in like whatever interview magazine or whatever, because they have a public. and who's paying for that. So I think that, that those systems of resourcing of the stars still exist.
2: You're totally right. And we need research for all, which yeah. involves creating research funding for everybody that is interested in it across the 4,300 institutions of higher education that we have, right. as opposed right. to the 43 or the 4.3 exactly. That- Feature in these, I I did a so back of the envelope calculation. Basically, you could give all eighty thousand professors of literature and language at at every type of institution twenty thousand dollars a year, which is about four or five times more than a literature professor will normally get at a public R one year in year out by applying to their senate committee on research, whatever, and it would add less than a percent to. The total higher education expenditure envelope for the United States. It's just, a, it would be a tiny investment and it would transform the intellectual life of the universities. All those community college folks, people really at the rock face, having a day a week bought out for at least for reading and reflection and course changes or introducing research finding into their courses, whatever it is that they want to do, would just make an enormous difference. It would de elitize topics. And it would show the power of the, the discipline when you really get all these different voices and all these different approaches into it, showing it as an interdiscipline, showing it as like the kind of the great synthesizing yeah. profession, that is interested in everything and brings things together in a way that regular folks can understand.
3: I have to tell you something. When I was writing my book about mathematics in the 19th century, I, in the early stages, applied for a Mellon New Directions grant, and my dean uh, signed off yeah. on it and all of that. And do you know what we got back in writing from Mellon? In no. writing to my dean, that, quote, UIC does not meet our standards for a faculty institution eligible for this. I teach at an R1, but it's an R1 for the urban poor, and I didn't even have the right to compete.
2: <laughs> How long ago was that?
3: It was in, the book came out in 2019, I think I applied for the grant in 2015. Wow. I can find the emails. My dean was shocked.
2: Yeah, yeah but mellon they really only gave money in the University of California to two campuses until very recently. And the branching out consisted of giving money to administrators rather than faculty yeah members. Yeah, it's really, it's a massive problem. The, just the, the sheer elitism is the thing that, I don't know, celebrity makes things recognizable. You want a simplifying face for things. And if you're not in the field and you don't have a minute even to look at the range of stuff, it's very convenient for you to have this famous person. Right. People still ask me, are you going to write about the wasteland? <laughs> <If> you, <laughs> no, but that's there's a they had learned a canon in school that helps them process the concept of literary studies and, and literature itself. And we really need to help society move beyond that. And vice versa, they need to help us <laughs> with our fixations.
1: One of the things that Katie says that that I think applies here is that decanonization has been absolutely necessary and good, right? We are missing something that that ties the big tent of literary studies together,
2: right?
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and that that there's all these different methodologies there's all these different sort of subfields and specializations that are not necessarily defined by temporality and geography anymore and and i love this about literary studies is is just how vast the things that fall under that umbrella is. But one of the reasons that Katie argues that something like professing criticism captures our attention is it's a way of bringing us all together. Mm-hmm. We're, we're thirsty for that kind of shared product or, or shared text. And, and one of the things that she suggested was that like, that actually the conflicts within literary studies have become that thing, right? The canon wars, the method wars, she offered up the potential for a future genre wars, like that these conflicts within literary studies that sometimes unfortunately devolve into kind of personal grudges are actually the way that we are finding some sort of shared common text.
2: Yeah, that's a total disaster to do it that way. Because people on the outside just think you're not producing anything except an argument with yourselves, and why do we care, when in fact we are producing not only readings, but understandings of how life works, and how society works, and how culture works, psychology in relation to the environment, and a whole bunch of all the other stuff that we're studying. Also, I don't agree with the idea that we are uniquely diverse. Every one of the 19th century disciplines, physics, economics, sociology, are absolutely pluralized beyond the ability of any one person in the field to understand all the sub I And mean, that's, everybody will, t- will tell us this if we look outside and talk to them. For example, economics has had this thing for 100 years called the National Bureau of Economic Research. They are somewhat more methodologically unified, but only because they screw over heterodox The methods that nonetheless continue to exist and aren't so much in the mainstream journals, but they have this thing, NBER that produces something like 15 to 20 work papers a week. And if you go to the website, what is this long list of stuff that you could pick through in order to find, if you're interested in economics of education, which is my main connection to economics, you can find that stuff and interact with the authors or whatever. We had something like a National Bureau for Cultural Research or Literary Research. We could see what people are writing. If the MLA turned its bibliography or added to its bibliography a front page that just lists new stuff with abstracts, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: it could be that simple. We would see that we're not only plural in in the same non-traumatic way that other disciplines are but that we're just producing an abundance of knowledge all the time that if we understood better would make it easier for us to clarify that the outside world, starting with our own deans and administrators.
3: I think
1: that's hard for me to agree with the imitation of economics as a discipline, but that's exactly the question I wanted to ask is what do we do to supersede this idea that conflict has become How literary studies identifies itself is the sort of internecine conflicts. What is an alternative and and what you suggest makes a great deal of sense to me. An actual portal around which the various pluralistic fields, methods, so on and so forth, right?
2: The only thing I would like us to imitate about economics is their confidence.
3: Okay, but I do think that we have the issue that people don't necessarily have time because their work has been so intensified and stuff to read enough. So if there's a sense of a lack of a conversation or an overvaluation of conflict, it's because like you want to be in on the the controversy or whatever. And that's the one thing that you have time to read when you're teaching. a <laughs> yeah. And I just think that we need structures of scholarly reward that redound to more reading of each other and less like the pursuit of genius and more collocation and conversation. I think that's why criticism is so vibrant in podcasts because it's conversational. It's not monologue. Logic. And what I, economics have going over us, and I can't believe I'm saying that sentence because I share a background in critical finance studies, and I am married to an economist, but is that they co-author and they yeah. collaborate. Right. They right. they are a discipline of cooperation and collaboration in a way that we are not. And that's really, I think, to our peril when it comes to scarce resources and when it comes to being able to um, embrace how much knowledge there is.
1: Yeah. I think that's an amazing point, point. and I think we are starting to see more collaboration and co-authorship in literary studies, but it's a really hard thing to embrace. Co-editing even is difficult, but certainly actually co-authoring is something that we have, you know, we have been indoctrinated with this idea that our prose is our personality, right, and that that then makes it hard to share that byline. But I do think that a lot of the work that's actually coming out of digital humanities, which we might critique in other ways, right, that is taking that co-authorship model that you get in economics or in other social sciences and adapting it for literary studies. And and I do think that it's it's mutually beneficial for the people involved
2: in it. It has to be funded. I think our right. problem is not psychological. Right. There There is experience that goes along with it, but it's really, we are not financially supported to work with each other in a sustained way. And, and my example is the HRI at, at UCI, which is really struggling now with a central defunding of the thing that I think really made it so valuable. And that is the ability to bring people together in residential research groups for 10 or 11 weeks or in the old days for two quarters, that so would be 20 to 22 weeks, where you just sit in a room together and work out a research agenda, you pursue that agenda, and then at the end of it, you produce a co-authored book. We just did this, ironically, with two economists and a couple of English professors and some geographers and generated a book called Metrics That Matter. Mm -hmm. Matt talked about before the MLA, came out with Hopkins just a month ago. And the reason that someone like me and the other literary critics were able to work with the two economists, in addition to the fact that they were lovely and interactive, generous people, is that we spent 10 to 20 hours a week for 10 weeks arguing about everything. Just the most basic things. Like why do you use the word externality instead of public? We had to have a a four hour meeting about the word public. (laughs) It's just like everything. And, And then we managed to carve out an area of agreement so that we would, for example, I'm a free college person and neither of the economists are. So we couldn't write the free college book together, but we could write a book about how per capita instructional funding is much more important than selectivity as a metric for whether you should go to the school or not, because we're all in agreement about that. So the HRI is potentially going to just be diminished into a kind of a Potemkin version of itself, when in fact what should be happening is that there should be 50 or 100 HRIs that people can regularly go to get bought out of teaching and spend time with their colleagues to develop a project that they could then spend the next year or so turning into knowledge that people can read, whether it's a website or a book or something else.
3: Yeah,
2: It's just really a material problem. I had this NSF grant where we, a group of five PIs, had $150,000 a year just to disseminate. And in fact, we were required to, we had to send people to conferences that were in our area. We had to give talks at the public library in the local town. We had to bring in school groups to our facilities to show them around. Mm -hmm. We wanted to, but the point is that STEM is STEM in large part because STEM has this money. And I realize there are other cultural factors, but they're just able to do and visualize themselves to the world and interact with the world uh, because they are funded to do so. And we need that.
1: Chris and Anna will reappear in next week's episode, at which point we'll be shifting our focus from the present to the past, examining a series of formative epochs in professional criticism, which predate the bad old days of high theory we covered last week. But before we turn back the clock, I've decided to create a supplementary episode which will appear in your feeds later this week. What's happening at West Virginia University right now is a perfect case in Ponzi austerity. As I argued in a short essay, called Gordon G's Draw Check Scheme, which you can find at the theamericanvandal.substack.com. This is one of the most audacious programs of corporate welfare by dismantling public education, which has yet been tried. And among the many victims is the World Languages, Literatures, and Linguistics Department, which has been scheduled for closure, privatization, and automation. I doubt that this would surprise Vera Falkes. Ponzi austerity comes for the cosmopolitans first.
4: My understanding of political processes and economic processes is that during a period of heavy, serious recession, these are not periods that are revolutionary. These periods breed monsters. They breed the Le Pens, they -hmm. breed the Yugips, the Golden Dawns, the Orhans in Hungary. This is why I very much fear the process of disintegrating the European Union. This is why I'm not in favor of disintegrating a European Union that I fought during my youth not to be part of yes. because it's this integration will create a postmodern 1930s and we know what grew out of it the, just look at Europe today we have the beginnings of this slide into a postmodern abyss of the 1930s variety and that will not produce progressive politics
1: during his negotiations with the troika vera Falkes pointed out that not only had the eurozone crisis produced an unabashedly nazi party with sizable representation within the greek parliament It had caused the press, political and pundit classes of Northern Europe to mount a publicity campaign against the so-called pigs of the Mediterranean, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, which was overtly nationalistic, xenophobic, racist, and dehumanizing. It was intended to relieve Northern Europeans of sympathy for the human toll of Ponzi austerity and reassure them that the fiscal waterboarding, another verifalcus term of art, was justified. This is an important facet of Ponzi austerity that explains not only the tire slashing of literary studies by legacy media earlier this year, but the recycling moral panics over woke professors, cancel culture campuses, critical race theory, trans studies, and so on. Many of these panics orchestrated by partisan think tanks and political action committees whose donors are the beneficiaries of Ponzi austerity. English and history must be dismantled because they are too politicized, physics because it's unproductive, music because it's inefficient, philosophy because there isn't enough consumer demand, and world languages because they aren't sufficiently proud to be American. Here's Vera Falcus again.
4: What did Greece offer the EU? Why did the EU want Greece in? Yeah, yeah. We didn't have natural resources in the form of oil and mm-hmm. gold and all that. What we had was the low level of indebtedness. Mm -hmm. We were an ideal customer for German and French banks because Greeks outright owned their homes. Nobody had mortgages. Nobody had credit cards. Nobody had personal loans. And they were almost Protestant in avoiding uh, indebtedness, debt. And this is a godsend for a Frankfurt bank banker awash with cash, trying to find somebody to lend it to, mm-hmm. who has collateral and a good credit history. Oh, that's great. So this is what we brought, yeah, our capacity great. to become indebted. This is what we offer the European Union. And lo and behold, we did manage it. Yeah, that's wonderful,
2: great.
1: It would be reasonable for you to think that in the argument I've been making, the analog for Greece is literary criticism, or humanities academia, or the public university, or just US higher ed in general. But that's not exactly right. Each of those is more analogous to the infrastructure that was being privatized, the local businesses that were being shuttered, and the social services that were being restricted by Ponzi austerity, immiserating and radicalizing the Greek people in the process. But the actual Greeks, in my analogy, are students. It is their capacity for indebtedness which higher ed's corporate partners covet as the German and French bankers once coveted the parsimonious post-Volkershock Greeks. It is the students who have access to the government loans and Pell Grants which can help prop up floundering, extractive, shiftless, and unimaginative private sectors. And it is they who need to be made into more pliant laborers in order for the MacGuffin of growth to be sustained. At the end of his 2016 lecture at the New School, which I have been excerpting throughout this episode, Verafalcus offers a prediction about what future for capitalism, the gallivanting global minotaur, the decades-long polycrisis portends.
4: The golden era of the post-war capitalist order, the Bretton Woods system, which was an aberration. It was a system that was created by new dealers who'd experienced in their bones the trials and tribulations. Of the Great Depression, and who were determined not to see this happen again, who understood probably not the epic struggle between labor and capital, but at least the epic struggle to recycle surpluses and deficits in complex economies that looked not like general equilibrium models, but closer to something like, that Michal Kalecki and John Maynard Keynes would have described. They understood that unless there was political surplus recycling at the global level, it was impossible to maintain fixed exchange rates and therefore to maintain a modicum of stability and an image of civilization for capitalism. It is not, I think, without meaning that Harry Dexter White ensured that in the Bretton Woods Conference, not one banker was allowed to attend. But that system was predicated upon American imperialism as well. The Cold War and the capacity of the United States to do the surplus recycling, to recycle its own surplus. The moment the United States lost its surplus and slipped into a deficit, the pressing question emerged, so how does the United States superpower maintain its hegemony now that it is no longer in surplus? Every other time in history, a mega power lost its surplus, collapsed. In the United States, we had a magnificent phenomenon of increased hegemony on the foundation of increased deficits. I think that the trick to achieving that was what Paul Volcker said in a discussion with Henry Kissinger in 1970. When Henry Kissinger asked him the question, How can we maintain our hegemony now that we've lost our surplus? And the answer was, Well, if we can't recycle our own surplus, we have to recycle everybody else's surpluses. And that, of course, was achieved through turning the United States of America into a huge vacuum cleaner that was sucking into American territory the net exports of Germany, of Japan, later of China, and paying for it by also sucking into Wall Street the profits of German Dutch. Saudi Arabian, Japanese, and later Chinese capital, and therefore closing the loop. But what happens when a tsunami of capital flows into Wall Street every day? Bankers find a way of dividing and multiplying it, of financializing it. But to financialize it, some politicians in Wall Street, in Street, in, in DC, have to turn a blind eye to this. And some theorists must provide the legitimation for this. Call it efficient market hypothesis, call it International financial macroeconomics taught in other universities. I hope you don't teach this rubbish here. And the result is a diminution of the link between even the semblance of liberal democracy with industrial capital, fixed capital formation, the conversion of companies like General Motors into financial instruments that produce some cars on the side. This whole Magnificent edifice, of course, collapsed under its own hubris in 2008. And the world remains ever since in limbo. It's crisis that is a crisis of realization and the result of the fact that this recycling mechanism is severely broken down, leads China to creating in desperation bubbles in order to buy time for America and Europe. To get their act together, but America and Europe are politically ungovernable. Here you have the White House vetoing the Congress and Congress vetoing the White House. In Europe, need I say more? <laughs> Just put the words European economic governance together and you end up with a joke. The world we live in is increasingly rudderless, in a constant, slow burning recession, while at the very, very same time, Increasing concentration in the IT sector is creating the new technologies that will do that which the left has failed to do. Overthrow capitalism. It is really very simple. The moment machines pass the Turing test properly, and you pick up the phone and you do not know whether the person that you are talking to is a human being or a machine, the moment we are going to have 3D printers. Operating as public utilities, you can send anything, any blueprint to it, and it can print from one pin to a motorcycle or to a car. The moment that this happens, we have not just a process of Schumpeterian creative destruction, but we have a process where economies of scale and the whole logic of corporate capitalism collapses. And at that point, we have a major rupture. That the political system, which has been completely depleted of any semblance of democracy, will not be able to regulate. At that point, humanity will be facing a juncture. We either move to a Star Trek like utopia, where technology becomes our slaves and we manage to utilize its wealth creating capacity for the purpose of the common good. Which will be democratically determined and not technologically, remember, Arrow, or we're going to move towards a matrix like dystopia where humans, independently of where they are, the owners of these magnificent machines, or the masses who are miserable and completely cut off productive society, will all become servants to the machines in exactly the same way that Mary Shelley described and Karl Marx followed in Das Kapital. The choice will depend on democratic politics. The choice is everyone's. Thank you.
1: Attributing Marx's anxiety of influence to Mary Shelley no doubt pleases many of the literature professors in the New School audience, and in this one. But it's also characteristic of Vera Falkus, whose felicity deploying literary allusions, fables, personal anecdotes, and aphorisms as one of those rare, truly interdisciplinary economists. Who understands the power of the literary and the literary critical. And here's where we return to Jet Esty.
0: You might call it declinism. You might call it the rhetoric of decline or what I see as the contradictory mainstream rhetoric of decline. Its most important feature is that it's built around a contradiction. It is what I would call the product of basically four types of speakers or four types of discourse economists, political scientists, historians, and journalists. And people who do cultural studies, especially literary studies, are not in the conversation very much. And the the conversation as a whole, which I took it upon myself to diagnose like a literary critic, has this governing contradiction, which is a mainstream reader or audience member of American media over the last 15 years since the 2008 crisis might be led to believe two contradictory things. One is that America is still the most powerful country in the world in every significant and important way, hard and soft power, and will be for the foreseeable future. And and the other is that America is in the grips of a very profound crisis, has maybe already gone over the cliff without realizing it. And that is a doubly false and I think doubly destructive narrative, that version of declinism.
1: And as you point out, this notion of decline is one that often corresponds with the exclusion of literary and cultural studies as sort of part of the influencer <laughs> you know, or pundit network. Right? But I'm wondering what decline means for literary and cultural studies, right? If we think about how that narrative works within that segment of academia within our sort of profession. How do you see declinism manifesting here?
0: It's so pervasive as a structuring narrative of American institutions, and particularly of higher education since the heyday of the post-World War II moment when we all think of universities as having been massively publicly funded and passively privately funded by endowments, et cetera, in a world of surplus American capital. Mm And for my generation, yours, and the generations just before mine, what has been a, a kind of constant sense of struggling with the decline of higher ed and with the decline of the humanities within higher ed. It, it is in some way the air we breathe, the prose we speak, the currency we swim in. But there's another way that's important to us, which is we have absolutely failed to seize on an important public function for criticism and critical thinking itself, even though we say those words all the time in our attempt to explain, justify and describe what we do and and practice what we do. And that is that declinism and decline narratives are completely organized by and governed by brute economic conditions on the one hand. And this is the paradox of it. And yet they float quite free from it on the other hand, meaning that what people believe about the state of social decline and economic decline in America is way more powerful than what is actually true. And the British example that I draw on in the book that you've read that we're talking about to some extent in this conversation bears that out too, which is to say there's a real disproportionate and, and reverse or floating non-correlation between narratives of decline and the facts of decline. And that's where we come in. It's funny to me and not surprising that the economists and historians and journalists didn't necessarily welcome me into the conversation in the way I might have hoped mm-hmm. in my grandiose fantasy of, trying to write a book that would cross over out of my academic specialization in in, in literary criticism and cultural history. But they don't actually have the tools, I think, to think about how hard it is to systematically study belief structures and narrative forms around national decline. In, In almost every conversation, what wins is one more fact about how many Chinese tanks there are, or one more metric about the rising rate of corporate profit in India relative to China. It's all technocratic, positivistic, econometric data management when everybody actually knows that what moves real people in terms of their behaviors, in terms of their identities, in terms of their voting patterns is almost all mythological. It's almost all non-factual. That's where we fit in the university and in the information ecosystem is we tack back and forth between real historical and social and economic facts on the one hand and the powerful fantasy structures that we use to shape those facts on the other.
1: Yeah, you remind me of one direct sympathy we have in our research, which is. Recognizing Keynes as a cultural critic, as much as an economic theorist, that yep. one part of Keynes's economic theory is an understanding that oftentimes narratives mean more than any of the underlying fundamentals and <laughs> that the state of confidence, which oftentimes is the thing moving the market in one direction or another, is almost entirely composed of myth and symbol and, and narrative, as you said. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. How do we frame what literaries and cultural historians do in a way that overcomes that increasing prejudice against literary criticism as something that matters?
0: The lost alliance between the liberal and the left sectors of the American political landscape, which I think is re-represented in the lost connection between academic thinking and journalistic thinking in so many ways about the big issues has partly to do with the fact that the, the liberal center understands how utterly failed the mission of developing a mythology of the left or of the liberal center has been relative to the incredibly lurid, vivid, potent mythologies of the right in America. And this is the particular point of intervention for me as a scholar is twofold. It's to look back at the moment when British culture and British university intellectuals were confronting an obvious wall-to-wall problem of national decline and shrunken estate in the immediate post-war years. And as long as the universities were decently well-funded, which they were at that stage of the welfare state, there was a kind of intellectual efflorescence around decline, which we know familiarly inside our discipline as the rise of the new left, and which I reread in this short book as a kind of first responders respond to British national decline, and as therefore a call to arms for us. And this is to to get to the second part of the twofold gesture I want to make, and that is that... Stuart Hall, one of the leaders of that movement, observed, as did many others who were studying the history of British politics, that working and middle class people in Britain, as they rose into literacy and political activism around the turn of the 19th century, between, say, 1880 and 1920, were not already sold on the idea that Britain's defining mission was an imperial one or a global one. And there was a real process of cultural recruitment through popular culture, through middle-brow culture, through the universities of pulling people into the mission of empire. My contention is that that happened in America too between 1920 and 1970. Hall's contention is that if people could be taught to rally around the imperial mission, they could also be taught to stop rallying around it. That if that was an active intellectual project, its opposite could become an active intellectual project. I wanna propose the same thing for us, as a call to arms for people working in the humanities, living through the post-2008 moment, living through the arc of crisis that America is in now, living through the fact that in, in this next generation of students, they will grow up in a world where India and China are not just bigger, poor countries, but are bigger economies than the American one. And that's not going to reverse itself, no matter how much power America holds onto militarily, no, how ma- no matter how much higher our per capita GDP is in your lifetime or mine. These mega trends are happening. And I think American intellectual structures can respond. The real problem is the underfunding. The institutional structures, that's a different question than what you're asking me, but the intellectual structures, we have a mission now to try to think about rewiring a sense of national purpose and a sense of national destiny, not ceding patriotism to the right, not even ceding it to the center, which in the words of Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama even replicates the notion that greatness is our destiny, but a kind of rewiring the notion that what greatness is has to do with producing a functional society not a world hegemon.
1: That was Jed Esti. Thank you to him, Anna Cornblue, and Christopher Newfield, as well as all of our guests. You can find out more about them and check out the bibliography for this episode at marktwainstudiescom backslash Ponzi or by subscribing to our newsletter at theamericanvandal.substock.com. Thank you as well to Joe Locke. His new album, Macron, provides the soundtrack for this series. You'll be hearing from me later this week when we talk about Ponzi austerity in the monolingual university. But for now, this has been the third episode of Criticism Limited, the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.
4: Very. Simple question. Okay. Is there hope? <laughs> well, there is always hope. hope. Uh, if, if you try to find uh, empirical evidence to sustain it, you will fail. There is no <laughs> evidence that you, one should be hopeful. And therefore, we, <laughs> yeah. you know, an old Greek communist once said to me, but as a Marxist, you must always have a view about everything and always remain hopeful.